EM Guidewire, hard-hitting emergency medicine from Carolina's Medical Center. Welcome back, everyone, to EM Guidewire. If you've been following along with the case presentations by Drs. Durba and Folk, you know we just addressed the initial management of the critically ill pediatric patient. If you didn't listen to it, go back. Give it a listen. I guarantee you there's some really useful tips in there. If you are, however, all caught up, Drs. Durba and Folk have another case waiting for you, ready in this episode. Here, they will discuss the etiology of the mysterious septic pulmonary emboli. Take it away, ladies. This is Destiny Folk, PGY2. And this is Sophia Durba, PGY2. Welcome back for another EM Guidewire episode. We hope you enjoyed the last episode talking about an approach to critically ill babies and pediatric intubation. Today's episode of EM Guidewire is brought to you by penicillin, the most common allergy that none of your patients actually have. Penicillin. (laughs) This episode will be similar to the last episode in a rapid case-based format. So let's jump right in. So you're a brand new PGY2 in the MICU, and you just heard about a patient at Signout who is a previously healthy 23-year-old male with sepsis of unknown origin, acute hypoxic respiratory failure with worsening infiltrates diffusely throughout both lungs, and glomerulonephritis. He initially presented for flank pain, hematuria, a sore throat, and congestion, and he rapidly deteriorated over the last two days and was transferred to the ICU for positive pressure ventilation. He just arrived on the unit, and your intern is taking care of him. As your intern is running his presentation by you and listing off a stellar differential, he gets a call from the nurse telling him that the patient's heart rate suddenly jumped up to the 150s. The nurse asks you what you'd like him to do. I'd ask the nurse to get an EKG, which he already has, and I'd go to the patient's room with my intern. When you get there, you get handed an EKG that looks really fast and really overwhelming. So you go back to the basics. Is it narrow or is it wide? And is it regular or irregular? It's narrow, so you know it's coming from above the ventricles, making it a supraventricular tachycardia, and it's irregularly irregular, making it AFib. Because it's AFib with a heart rate greater than 100, it's AFib with rapid ventricular response at a rate of 156. So what do you do? Rate control? Rhythm control? Shock them? Chemically cardiovert them? First, it's important to distinguish this patient who is already septic and acute hypoxic respiratory failure from the patient who presents to the ED with palpitations. Most EDs have an AFib pathway with options for rate control and then chemical or electrical cardioversion for patients whose primary presentation is the AFib. This patient, on the other hand, has an underlying condition driving his AFib. So the answer is to treat the underlying condition. But we already gave him his initial fluid bolus in the ED, he's on broad-spectrum antibiotics, and he's on positive pressure ventilation, so we're treating his underlying condition. But his heart rate is still in the 150s, jumping up to 170s on the monitor. During my time in the ICU, I know we rate-controlled these patients, but why do we do it if the answer is to treat the underlying condition? While we try our best to treat the underlying cause of the AFib, we sometimes have to rate-control while that underlying problem is cooling off, or when we have to get their heart rate under slightly better control to be able to admit them to the floor. The reason we rate-control while the underlying problem is cooling off is because at a certain rate, the AFib starts to contribute to poor cardiac output. Remember the cardiac output equation? Cardiac output equals stroke volume times heart rate. So as your heart rate goes up, your stroke volume can start to suffer. This is probably above a rate of about 140 to 150 for a normal young person with a healthy heart. But for older sick people with CHF or otherwise terrible hearts, that upper limit number is probably closer to the 130s. If they're in AFib with RVR staying above those rates, it's probably hurting their cardiac output. So to improve their hemodynamics, we rate control while we give the underlying problem time to improve. You can use agents like diltiazem, which is what we did in this case, giving the patient two boluses and then eventually starting him on a dilt drip, 
but you can also use metoprolol. Amiodarone is also an option, and digoxin can be used in refractory cases. Also make sure you correct any electrolyte abnormalities as best as you can because you will achieve better rate control. Cardioverting, either chemically or electrically, is not recommended unless the patient is unstable because they almost always go right back into AFib if that underlying cause of their AFib still hasn't improved. It's nice to know why we do the things we do, like rate controlling AFib for sick ICU patients with underlying conditions. Now, let's jump to the next morning when you're on rounds with your attending, covering the patient for your intern because it's a weekend, and your attending gets notification that the patient's blood culture just resulted. It's positive for Fusobacterium necroform an anaerobic gram-negative rod. Your attending says to you, do you remember from your board exams what diagnosis that bacteria is associated with and what test you should get next? And just to recap, this is a previously healthy 23-year-old male who presented with malaise, sore throat, flank pain, and hematuria, now with sepsis, acute hypoxic respiratory failure, with worsening infiltrates, dotting his lungs, and glomerulonephritis. The best I could get out was, hmm, definitely rings a bell. I think it's something to do with the neck. It's not Ludwig's angina, but something neck-related. Um, I'm an EM doctor, so I'm going to do what I do best and say we should get some sort of <laughs> CT scan. In this case, Dr. Derba, yes, you do get some sort of CT scan. <laughs> Specifically, you should get a CT soft tissue of the neck with contrast. And when we did get a CT of his neck, he had a nearly 5-centimeter thrombus in his left internal jugular vein. I knew it was something to do with the neck. <laughs> Have any of you guessed the diagnosis yet? left IJ thrombus and sepsis with Fusobacterium necroforum? You can pause the podcast if you need a minute. That's right. It's Lemire syndrome. Lemire syndrome is septic thrombophlebitis, or inflammation in a vein causing a clot to form, of the internal jugular vein that causes bacteremia. It usually happens following a bacterial pharyngitis when that bacteria spreads from the throat to the vasculature of the neck. Septic emboli can break off and cause trouble elsewhere in the body which is why our patient's chest x-ray and CT showed those diffuse infiltrates. But that definition of Lemire syndrome is actually variable. Some definitions say that there has to be IJ thrombophlebitis with a fusobacterium species of bacteria, and others say it can be any bacteria, although generally an anaerobic one, while still others say you have to have septic emboli. And to add to the confusion, some definitions count cases with positive blood cultures and septic emboli only, without evidence of the septic IJ thrombus. Because there are only an estimated 3.6 cases per million people, there aren't systematic studies on its exact pathophysiology, management, or outcomes. So what do you need to care about? If you have a septic patient with bacteremia and evidence of septic emboli, like the ones likely causing this patient's rapidly developing and worsening pulmonary infiltrates and glomerulonephritis, and maybe a sore throat, and you've already thought about the much, much more common cause of this, which is endocarditis and your echo doesn't show any vegetations, and they don't have a chronic indwelling catheter that's infected and throwing septic emboli, which is also the much more common diagnosis, and your blood culture grows in anaerobic species like Fusobacterium necroforum, you should get a CT of the neck. It's also important to note that our patient had erythema of his posterior pharynx on initial exam, but the primary throat infection might resolve by the time the thrombophlebitis has developed one to two weeks later, and you're unlikely to be able to palpate a thrombus in the neck, but the patient may have tenderness over the area. Treatment is with antibiotics covering fusobacterium and strep species, so piperacillin tazobactam, acarbapenem, or ceftriaxone plus metronidazole for at least four weeks, two of which should be IV. If your patient is getting sicker despite about five to seven days of IV antibiotics, you may consider anticoagulation to prevent the clot progressing up into the cavernous sinus, but anticoagulation isn't routinely recommended. And then finally, IV ligation or excision of the IJ thrombus is not routinely done and is an absolute last resort if antibiotics aren't working and the thrombus continues to progress. But if that's the case, 
Why even get imaging to confirm the thrombus? Great question, Dr. Folk. It's helpful to find your etiology, but even more helpful to make sure you don't try to place a line through that thrombus, like I almost did. Yikes. I guess that's why we use ultrasound to guide placement of our central lines. Exactly. I thought I was doing the right thing, saving the right IJ for a vast cath in case this patient with glomerulonephritis eventually needed dialysis. While ultrasound prevented me from poking through the clot because I saw a patent vessel without a clot in it when I was placing the line, I was horrified to see that CT scan with a huge clot just a few centimeters above my line. That sounds like it was a close call. And that's a nice reminder that in other patients without a clot in their IJ, the left IJ should be your go-to for placing a central line to preserve the right side in case the patient needs a vas cath during their hospitalization, because the right IJ tends to be slightly larger and provide a more direct path to the superior vena cava. Well, that wraps up this case. To summarize, AFib with RVR in the setting of significant systemic illness is technically treated by treating the underlying condition. However, sometimes we give rate control agents to improve cardiac output to give the underlying condition time to improve and to prevent tachycardiomyopathy. Lemire syndrome is one of those zebra diagnoses that you can consider on your differential of a really sick patient with gram-negative anaerobic bacteremia, like with Fusobacterium necroforum, and evidence of septic emboli. And you should get a CT of the neck because you can sometimes find a septic thrombophobitis in one of the IJs. You should definitely look for more common causes of septic emboli first, though, like endocarditis or an indwelling catheter that has gotten infected, because this 3.6 in a million diagnosis is something I'm not likely to come across again in my career. Well... That wraps up this episode. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of EM Guidewire here at the J. Lee Garvey Studio. We'll be back for another episode soon. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! Seems he out. <laughs> I hope I'm saying it right. As long as we both say it the same way. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that went off the rails. Sorry, Dr. Fox. <laughs> we crushed it. That was nice. awesome.